Section 10 of Inquiry Concerning Political Justice and Its Influence on Morals and Happiness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dykstra, Farragut, Iowa. Inquiry Concerning Political Justice and Its Influence on Morals and Happiness by William Godwin. Book 1, Chapter 6 Of the Influence of Climate Means by which liberty is to be introduced Their efficacy illustrated Facts in confirmation of these reasonings Inference Two points further are necessary to be illustrated in order to render our view of man in his social capacity impartial and complete. There are certain physical causes which have commonly been supposed to oppose an immovable barrier to the political improvement of our species. Climate, which is imagined to render the introduction of liberal principles upon this subject in some cases impossible, and luxury, which, in addition to this disqualification, precludes their revival even in countries where they had once most eminently flourished. An answer to both these objections is included in what has been offered upon the subject of the voluntary actions of man. If truth, when properly displayed, be omnipotent, then neither climate nor luxury are invincible obstacles. But so much stress has been laid upon these topics, and they have been so eloquently enforced by poets and men like poets, that it seems necessary to bestow upon them a distinct examination. It is impossible, say some, to establish a system of political liberty in certain warm and effeminate climates. To enable us to judge of the reasonableness of this affirmation, let us consider what process would be necessary in order to introduce political liberty into any country. The answer to this question is to be found in the answer to that other, whether freedom have any real and solid advantages over slavery. If it have, then our mode of proceeding respecting it ought to be exactly parallel to that we should employ in recommending any other benefit. If I would persuade a man to accept a great estate, supposing that possession to be a real advantage, if I would induce him to select for his companion a beautiful and accomplished woman, or for his friend a wise, a brave, and disinterested man, if I would persuade him to prefer ease to pain and gratification to torture, what more is necessary than that I should inform his understanding and make him see these things in their true and genuine colors? Should I find it necessary to inquire first of what climate he was a native, and whether that were favorable to the possession of a great estate, a fine woman, or a generous friend? The advantages of liberty over slavery are not less real, though unfortunately they have been made less palpable in their application to the welfare of communities at large than the advantages to accrue in the cases above enumerated. Every man has a confused sense of the real state of the question, but he has been taught to believe that men would tear each other to pieces if they had not priests to direct their consciences, lords to consult for their tranquility, and kings to pilot them in safety through the dangers of the political ocean. 
but whether they be misled by these or other prejudices, whatever be the fancy terror that induces them quietly to submit, to have their hands bound behind them, and the scourge vibrated over their heads, all these are questions of reason. Truth may be presented to them in such irresistible evidence, perhaps by such degrees familiarized to their apprehension, as ultimately to conquer the most obstinate prepossessions. Let the press find its way into Persia or Indistan. Let the political truths discovered by the best of the European sages be transfused into their language, and it is impossible that a few solitary converts should not be made. It is the property of truth to spread, and exclusively of any powerful counteraction, its advocates in each succeeding year will be somewhat more numerous than in that which went before. The causes which suspend its progress arise not from climate, but from the watchful and intolerant jealousy of despotic sovereigns. What is here stated is in fact little more than a branch of the principle which has been so generally recognized. That government is founded in opinion. Footnote. Hume's Essays. Part 1. Essay 4. End of footnote. Let us suppose, then, that the majority of a nation, by however slow a progress, is convinced of the desirableness, or, which amounts to the same, the practicability of freedom. The supposition would be parallel if we were to imagine 10,000 men of sound intellect shut up in a madhouse and superintended by a set of three or four keepers. Hitherto they have been persuaded, for what absurdity has been too great for human intellect to entertain, that they were destitute of reason, and that the superintendence under which they were placed was necessary for their preservation. They have therefore submitted to whips and straw and bread and water, and perhaps imagined this tyranny to be a blessing. But a suspicion is at length by some means propagated among them, that all they have hitherto endured has been an imposition. The suspicion spreads, they reflect, they reason, the idea is communicated from one to another through the chinks of their cells, and at certain times, when the vigilance of their keepers has not precluded them from mutual society. It becomes the clear perception, the settled persuasion of the majority of the persons confined. What will be the consequence of this opinion? Will the influence of climate prevent them from embracing the obvious means of their happiness? Is there any human understanding that will not perceive a truth like this when forcibly and repeatedly presented? Is there a mind that will conceive no impatience of so horrible a tyranny? In reality, the chains fall off of themselves when the magic of opinion is dissolved. When a great majority of any society are persuaded to secure any benefit to themselves, there is no need of tumult or violence to effect it. The effort would be to resist reason, not to obey it. The prisoners are collected in their common hall, and the keepers inform them that it is time to return to their cells. They have no longer the power to obey. They look at the impotence of their late masters and smile at their presumption. They quietly leave the mansion where they were hitherto immured and partake of the blessings of light and air like other men. 
it may perhaps be useful to consider how far these reasonings upon the subject of liberty are confined to us by general experience as to the comparative inefficacy of climate and the superior influence of circumstances, political and social. The following instances are for the most part abridged from the judicious collections of Hume upon the subject. Footnote. Essays. Part 1. Essay 21. End of footnote. 1. If a theory here asserted be true, we may expect to find the inhabitants of neighboring provinces in different states widely discriminated by the influence of government and little assimilated by resemblance of climate. Thus the Gascons are the gayest people in France, but the moment we pass the Pyrenees, we find the serious and saturnine character of the Spaniard. Thus the Athenians were lively, penetrating, and ingenious, but the Thebans, unpolished, phlegmatic, and dull. 2. It would be reasonable to expect that different races of men, intermixed with each other, but differently governed, would afford a strong and visible contrast. Thus the Turks are brave, open, and sincere, but the modern Greeks mean, cowardly, and deceitful. 3. Wandering tribes closely connected among themselves, and having little sympathy with the people with whom they reside, may be expected to have great similarity of manners. Their situation renders them conspicuous. The faults of individuals reflect dishonor upon the whole, and their manners will be particularly sober and reputable, unless they should happen to labor under so peculiar an odium as to render all endeavor after reputation fruitless. Thus the Armenians in the East are as universally distinguished among the nations with whom they reside as the Jews in Europe. But the Armenians are noted for probity, and the Jews for extortion. 4. What resemblance is there between the ancient and the modern Greeks, between the old Romans and the present inhabitants of Italy, between the Gauls and the French? Theodorus Siculus describes the Gauls as particularly given to taciturnity, and Aristotle affirms that they are the only warlike nation who are negligent of women. If, on the contrary, climate were principally concerned in forming the characters of nations, we might expect to find heat and cold producing an extraordinary effect upon men, as they do upon plants and inferior animals. But the reverse of this appears to be the fact. Is it supposed that the neighborhood of the sun renders men gay, fantastic, and ingenious? While the French, the Greeks, and the Persians have been remarkable for their gaiety, the Spaniards, the Turks, and the Chinese are not less distinguished by the seriousness of their deportment. It was the opinion of the ancients that the northern nations were incapable of civilization and improvement, but the moderns have found that the English are not inferior in literary eminence to any nation in the world. Is it asserted that the northern nations are more hardy and courageous, and that conquest has usually traveled from that to the opposite quarter? It would have been truer to say that conquest is usually made by poverty upon plenty. The Turks, who from the deserts of Tartary invaded the fertile provinces of the Roman Empire, met the Saracens halfway, who were advancing with similar views 
from the no less dreary deserts of Arabia. In their extreme, perhaps heat and cold may determine the characters of nations, of the Negroes, for example, on one side, and the Laplanders on the other. Not but that, in this very instance, much may be ascribed to the wretchedness of a sterile climate on the one hand, and to the indolence consequent upon a spontaneous fertility on the other. As to what is more than this, remedy has not yet been discovered. Physical causes have already appeared to be powerful, till moral ones can be brought into operation. Has it been alleged that carnivorous nations are endowed with the greatest courage? The Swedes, whose nutriment is meager and sparing, have ranked with the most distinguished modern nations in the operations of war. It is usually said that northern nations are most addicted to wine and southern to women. Admitting this observation in its full force, it would only prove that climate may operate upon the grosser particles of our frame, not that it influences those finer organs upon which the operations of intellect depend. But the truth of the first of these remarks may well be doubted. The Greeks appear to have been sufficiently addicted to the pleasures of the bottle. Among the Persians, no character was more coveted than that of a hard drinker. It is easy to obtain anything of the Negroes, even their wives and children, in exchange for liquor. As to women, the circumstance may be accounted for from moral causes. The heat of the climate obliges both sexes to go half-naked. The animal arrives sooner at maturity in hot countries. And both these circumstances produce vigilance and jealousy, causes which inevitably tend to inflame the passions. The result of these reasonings is of the utmost importance to him who speculates upon principles of government. There have been writers on this subject who, admitting and even occasionally declaiming with enthusiasm upon the advantages of liberty and the equal claims of mankind to every social benefit, have yet concluded that the corruptions of despotism and the usurpations of aristocracy were congenial to certain ages and divisions of the world, and under proper limitations, entitled to our approbation. But this hypothesis will be found unable to endure the test of serious reflection. There is no state of mankind that renders them incapable of the exercise of reason. There is no period in which it is necessary to hold the human species in a condition of pupillage. If there were, it would seem but reasonable that their superintendents and guardians, as in the case of infants of another sort, should provide for the means of their subsistence without calling upon them for the exertions of their own understanding. Wherever men are competent to look the first duties of humanity in the face, and to provide for their defense against the invasions of hunger and the inclemencies of the sky, it can scarcely be thought that they are not equally capable of every other exertion that may be essential to their security and welfare. The real enemies of liberty in any country are not the people, but those higher orders who find their imaginary profit in a contrary system. Infuse just views of society into a certain number of the liberally educated and reflecting members, 
give to the people guides and instructors, and the business is done. This, however, is not to be accomplished, but in a gradual manner, as will more fully appear in the sequel. The error lies, not in tolerating the worst forms of government for a time, but in supposing a change impracticable, and not incessantly looking forward to its accomplishment. End of section 10